Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here, joined again by Jenna Spinelli. Jenna first joined us last spring when the first wave of COVID-19 was hitting. Had a really interesting conversation at the time. The democracy group was just being formed. We're going to get more from Jenna on that. Just really happy to have her back. And as a follow-up on our previous show, Jenna recently attended the Podcast Movement Conference in Tennessee. So we're going to get some of her take on that. But uh, before we get into that, Jenna, welcome back to Trending in Education. How does it feel the second time around? Oh, thanks, Mike. So great to be back. I was just sitting here thinking about how much in some ways things have changed since the last time you and I talked, but also not really at all. I was sitting here in my dining room talking to you last spring, and here I am still today. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it was great to get back out in the world a little bit at Podcast Movement and excited to, to talk all about it. Yeah, exactly. So just to do a quick refresher for folks, can you describe where you are in your professional life and, and what you do in case they maybe haven't caught the previous episode? Sure. So I am based in State College, Pennsylvania at Penn State University, where I wear a couple of different hats. I teach in the communication school and my day job is at the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, where I host and produce a podcast called Democracy Works. And last year, just about the time of my last appearance on this show, I started a podcast network, a group that's grown to uh, 15 podcasts, all in democracy, civic engagement, civil discourse. That's called the Democracy Group. And I do various other things as well, promoting speakers and, and faculty research. It's a job that is at the intersection of pretty much all the things I'm interested in. So I'm, I'm pretty fortunate in that regard. Yeah, you're pushing the envelope a bit in terms of some digital media capabilities at the university level at Penn State. That's an interesting space to be operating in, and that's part of what got you on a panel at Podcast Movement as well. So in addition to attending, which I want to get more of the, some stories from what that felt like, but even beyond that, the panelist experience is pretty interesting just because so much of what we've been doing has gone virtual. First off, where exactly was it in Tennessee? I don't want to choose the wrong municipality. Everything on the conference branding said Nashville, but the conference actually happened at the Gaylord Opryland Resort and Conference Center. I don't know if that's actually in Nashville proper. Folks can Google it, I guess, if they're really yeah. curious, but it was maybe a 20 minute or so car ride to get from the, the hotel to the, downtown Nashville. And the, that's fair advertising. You got to imagine conferences are going to be NBA bubble, like Olympic bubble, like where you kind of want to know who's there. You want to have a, some control over the space. And also hotels, I, I think, are trying to pivot in this direction so that folks feel comfortable coming back to them. Although your point, I think is a good one in that I like being able to walk around a downtown as part of my conference experience, either that or the Vegas Strip, which is a downtown, but it's more casino to casino. So Vegas has a place in my heart as far as conference experiences go. Uh, but what about just the experience of the conference? How did it compare and what did it feel like to be back out? Yeah, so it was, that was definitely the most people I had been around since you know, before COVID and the conference organizers, I have to say, were really great about rolling with the, the punches. The conference was the first week in August. So really just as the, the Delta variant was 
ramping up. And so they were very proactive about encouraging masking and all of those kinds of things. So that was great. It was a little weird at first to be standing around talking to people with masks on, but like everything, you, you get used to it. By the end of the third day, I forgot I was wearing it at some point, but the vendor booths were much more spaced out to accommodate social distancing. And some of the sessions, there were some last minute changes and things. There were instances where people were sitting in a room watching a, a video presentation or like a, a Zoom session. So that was interesting. I had never done that before. I had actually joked before the conference with friends that the experience of doing our panel might be like a band playing a show to an empty concert hall like they've been doing. Yeah, it would be yeah. everybody attending virtually, but the talent there in person. But mm -hmm. it actually ended up being the opposite. It was a lot of the attendees there in person, but the, some of the uh, presenters were there virtually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm glad I did it. It was good to get back out and remember that there's life happening outside of the walls of my house or the little bubbles we've all been living in. Yeah. And I, I don't have children or, or anything like that to, to worry about. So I felt pretty comfortable. I'm fully vaccinated. I felt pretty comfortable about all the you know decisions I made as far as COVID. Yeah. And I guess some of your working memory was dedicated to whatever was specific to the pandemic context, as opposed to if you could just lean into a conference and not have to worry about any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think we all want that beautiful tomorrow to be here, but I don't think it's here just yet. I do have this concept I talk about, which is JOMO, the, the joy of missing out, sometimes intentionally being happy that you're not doing something. The, the stories we tell ourselves that make us feel better for me, once I knew I wasn't going to be going in person to podcast movement, I didn't want to pay to go to an online conference when webinars are free so often. When I don't pay for the experience, I'm not that interested in it. And there's some cognitive dissonance there where I've already said it's not worth my time to this level. So I'm more likely to devalue it. And I think the opposite is also true. Like if you go to the conference, there's the idea from poker that you're pot committed, you've already invested, you bought the airfare, you want to have some positive experience out of this. At a minimum, you're going to learn from being there. And then the thing I really like about conferences frequently is you're forced to work on yourself to a certain extent. A lot of these sessions are really for your own cognitive betterment. And then frequently the networking piece or meetings that you're taking while you're there, you know, going to dinner with colleagues, getting coffee with someone, even chatting over lunch at a conference, the lunch conference table conversation is something that I've always gotten a lot of value out of when I go to a conference. I think those contexts might be so much in transition that it's challenging. I, I just wanted to, to follow up on that. Jomo notion. I, I too feel that sometimes, but I will say the one thing about being there in person and, and to what you were saying about taking meetings and whatnot I had and just lucked into some spontaneous meetings that I would not have had the chance to have otherwise. Like these are mm -hmm. not people that I would have even thought to reach out to and set up a zoom meeting, or right. they might not have responded to my email, frankly. Right. So, you know, there is something to be said for that. You have a captive audience. If you're sitting next to somebody at, right. at a lunch table or in line for something or whatever. And so that's one difference from the in-person world versus the, the virtual one. Yeah. I think that's a great point. I've heard it referred to as forced serendipity. Everybody's already there. So the chance of just bumping into each other, which is also why from an 
epidemiological perspective. That's also probably the way the virus is thinking. But I think the related point is that in service of being inclusive, these conferences are providing an online version at the same time. I was talking about this uh, on, a, on a previous episode and you reached out in part to say it felt like that a little bit in that it is a little more like the movers and the shakers, the haves versus the have nots, uh, the people who are going to make things happen, actually clear whatever hurdles they need to, to get to the, the room where it happens. And that's why I think there's some risk around the haves and the have nots component, particularly when we're talking about the digital divide and assuming once we cross the digital divide, hooray, we have equity. It doesn't seem like it's going to move in that direction, but I'd love to hear a little bit of your perspective as a podcaster, as someone caring about civic engagement and mm. then someone who thinks about how uh, these formats evolve. Yeah. So from the, the podcaster perspective, there was definitely, it felt to me much more of an industry presence at podcast movement. You, you, even when you know, the last time I was there in person was 2019 and the, the history of that organization, as, as I understand it, it has been, it started off as a resource for indie mm-hmm. creators. And then there's still something like a 60,000 strong Facebook community comprised almost, I think, entirely of, of independent podcasters. And that, that element definitely was still there. I, I did hear from Dan Franks, who's one of the organizers of the conference, that some of the indie creators did shift their attention to virtual. Uh, and so you, t- to your point, it was more the industry movers and shakers who were there. And some of that is just an a, indicative of the way that podcasting has gone. In the past two years, from 2019 to now, the industry has just blown up. There's so much more money, so many more big players. So in some ways, it's not totally surprising and and maybe not even a bad thing. I, I could see a world in which podcast movement does take on more of the industry insider conference and the indie creators yeah. go somewhere else. And I mean, right. we can talk about whether that's that's good or bad, but uh, I think those kind of you know, cleavages are, are certainly natural in, in some respects. Yeah. And that maybe leads to another point that, that was one of your takeaways, which for podcasters, which is to know your audience. And then if the audience of podcast movement originally was the indie audience, or maybe they still have it, but they're not as interested in the industry insider version of the conference, where will you go to meet your audience? And what what is your audience expecting? That was one of the themes that was uh, jumping out at you in your response piece. Can, Can you expand on the importance of audience? Yeah. So in this world where there are so many big players now, so there one question came up at a panel on what's the future of leadership in podcasting. And the, the moderator asked the question, can you still launch a podcast if you don't have a megaphone today? Is it still possible to launch a, a successful show if you're not an iHeartRadio or a Stitcher or a Spotify or one of these big players? And yeah. the answer, the consensus was that yes, but you have to be way more focused on your niche, know exactly who you're creating that content for, exactly how to find those people and how yeah. to get them to listen to your show. And that's again, if you are looking to make make a podcast, whether it is just to, to do advertising or start down the monetization path or to use it to launch some other part of your business, I think there will still always be, and, and I frankly hope that there still always are, the people who do podcasting just as a passion project, just because mm-hmm. they feel like 
they have something to say, something to contribute. And I hope that the platform will still continue to give them a place to to do that and have that like democratic element to it. But for people who are serious on the professional side of of independent, I think really honing in on who that audience is, is going to be even more critical moving forward than it has been. Yeah, that is interesting in that it does create narrower programming channels, content channels. And where do you make connections across? And how, how do we continue to drive towards interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary? Even like when I think about science communication podcasts, which is a big a content slice, Wendy Zuckerman, Science Versus is an example of this. There's a bunch of them out there that are about educating people on science. There are other lanes that are very similar and how do audiences connect between those similar lanes that was another one that that you wrote a little bit about can you talk about some of the the ways in which you can make connections between audiences and ways to grow sure so this is this is the 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 piece of it what you were just saying about the increasingly narrow lanes for these things that really if i put on my democracy hat that's troubling to me in some respects, because yeah. there's on the one hand, this notion that yes, podcasting allows for much deeper, more nuanced conversations about politics than you can have on Twitter or on cable news, et cetera. But that's only true if people listen to it. And m- many people are not inclined to seek out content that they don't already agree with. That's mm-hmm. true of, of podcasting. That's true of newsletters, et cetera, which is a part of a class I'm teaching this fall at Penn State. One of the things I think about a lot for our network is what's the Overton window? How can we make inroads that make sense and find communities of people that are interested in big ideas, thought-provoking topics, learning more about the world around them, but maybe think politics, eh, that's not for me. How do we find those people? We have 15 shows in our network. I hope that one of them might be a gateway for you to come in and uh, use it as an on-ramp into this world of, of thinking differently about how to fix our democracy that's in many ways broken. Yeah, and then at the same time, when you're producing a podcast or a network of podcasts, what does that actually mean in terms of the formats that you're distributing? How much of it is exclusively the audio feed? Should you have a YouTube presence? How can and should you engage in social media? I see in some ways the the network being an audio component of other media, other organizations that are out there. So for example, there is a, a website called The Fulcrum, which publishes news about political reform and the inner workings of, of government and all those kind of things. They have written articles. So starting this fall, are going to have a, a collaboration where we are the audio component of the content that they're already putting out. We've collaborated with an organization called Muck Tracker. We partner with them to do a guide about how to combat misinformation. In that case, they provided the expertise for us to create a two or three page PDF that we put up on our website and shared with educators. And then we shared some of our audio content with them to use in the the curriculum and the other things that they're working on. Mm -hmm. So looking for those mutually beneficial things. And then 
at Podcast Movement, there was a great session from Lauren Passell, who runs Podcast the Newsletter and Tink Media. Her big thing is promo swaps, shows trading ads back and forth. She just has some really interesting ideas about looking outside of your lane. So let's say, Mike, you host a show that's all about education and ed tech and all of that, but I'm sure you have other interests outside of that. So Lauren, if she was working with you, might ask you, okay, what's your hobby? And you say, oh, I, I go trout fishing every weekend. She might try to get you booked on a trout fishing podcast to talk right. of using those kind of connections outside the narrow lane of whatever it is that your show is about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the reasons why I've enjoyed some of the podcasting conferences that I've gone to is more that sense of collegiality among independent podcasters, which was always the mindset that I was adopting. Even when I was producing a podcast for an organization, I still felt like the spirit of the platform that is podcasting is more independent and more about barter and mm. collaboration. And that's why I, I do miss the way conferences used to be in terms of staying ahead of trends around where the world of learning is going, where the world of podcasting is going. Where else do you look? We talked about podcast movement, which sounds like there was some value to be had going there. I, I went many years ago. I definitely want to go back to attend in person in the future. I think that's an interesting space. What do you think about conferences in general? And then are there any out there that are piquing your attention? So by far, the conference I heard talked about most as the new home for indie podcasters was PodFest, which I believe was in Orlando the last time it was held in person, the first weekend in March of 2020. So the last thing before everything shut down. And I know that they have done um, virtual versions of that. The folks who run that really try to hype up or you know really promote the, those networking opportunities. I was part of uh, an education-focused cluster that they did. So when it was virtual last year, they had Monday afternoon was education, Tuesday Tuesday morning was healthcare podcasters and Tuesday afternoon was military and they broke it out by niche that way. So that was an interesting model. I, I would love to see what that looks like in person. And I, I've also heard that they do speed networking or they, they did that the last time it was in person. So really yep. trying to, to promote those connections between indie podcasters. Yeah. There's also been, I think, and part of this is COVID related, even though there's not as many conferences, there's a lot more podcast media out there in general. So the, the, the Bellow Collective, which is, is an organization that I've written for, they continue to, to go strong with both podcast criticism and looking at the, the future of the industry. Timber Media is a new um, company that's come online. They're doing some really interesting stories about audience development and basically the ins and outs of how successful podcasters built their shows. Yeah. Lots of great media out there. Yeah. Yeah. And any of this come up as part of the conference to think about live audio. I know Mark Cuban was there talking about Fireside, which is similar to Clubhouse, which is more about live and interactive audio as, as a new format that's emerging. Same thing with you're competing with audiobooks. Uh, you're also in some ways bumping up against people's commute times, which may be less if they're spending more time at home. But any macro trends around how to think about producing audio and how to think about what's emerging in the, the audio space a little more broadly? 
Yeah. The the big trend is that shorter is better. They didn't go as far as to say the days of the three hour chat show are over, but I yeah. think they're waning except for the biggest players out there. And that sort of makes sense if you think about there's more shows than ever. People have more demands on their time as just as you were saying, and also just people are probably subscribed to more podcasts now than they were two years ago. So if you want to get people to listen, you need to make content that's, that's shorter and, and more accessible and really honed in to what your audience wants. And that's true, whether you're making a, a podcast in the traditional sense, if you're planning a space on Clubhouse or Fireside. Facebook audio was another thing that came up from time to time, just what the future of that holds and pros and cons about getting in bed with Facebook as far as, as, as podcasting goes. I didn't go to very many sessions on that, so I don't really have a fully formed opinion on that yet, but I think we'll hear lots more about Facebook and as the other social platforms continue to dabble in, in audio moving forward. Yeah. And then even at, maybe at a, a different level, there's also the idea of keeping it real versus selling out, which is very central to the Uber story of podcasting over the years, where it's very much a grassroots platform in its origins. And then over the course of time, things gravitate towards corporatization and a big business vibe that then in some ways will steer the content in some directions that are a little more market driven. Any concerns about that from a civil society perspective? Do we want the invisible hand of the marketplace to be run by these big organizations that then are feeding us our media diet? I I've been thinking about this a lot. I'm teaching a class this fall at Penn State that's all about independent content creation. How do you, as a journalism major or, or a communications major, how do you think about a career path that does not involve going and getting a job at a media organization? How do you become your own content entrepreneur? A corporatization, as you said, the big get bigger, that, that has happened in every type of media that we've ever had. And so it's inevitable in some ways it's going to happen in podcasting. But on the other side of that, we're also seeing now the consequences of what happens when a lot of the gatekeepers that come with media institutions aren't there anymore and people can just find an audience and, and make a living saying whatever they want. And so there's pros and cons there in terms of the actual marketplace versus the marketplace of, of ideas and how those two things intersect. And I think we're just in that messy middle of figuring out what all of that's going to look like. But from an, an entrepreneurship perspective, and this is what I'm going to be talking a lot and bringing in people to, to, to speak to my students who have done this is that it's a great time to launch a newsletter, launch a podcast. If you can find the niche community that is really interested in the same thing that you're interested in, if you guys yeah. can all like nerd out about the same stuff together, you can make a living or at least make a running shot at making a living at it. And so that's what I'm going to be focusing on in the class this fall. And I'm super interested to see how the students react to it and how they take to this way of thinking. Last time we talked was right in the throes of the first wave and you were managing the, the big shift to Zoom. And then here we are. There's still a lot of a complexity to the conversation. Since we've had a little more time now to start to synthesize things, taking a step back, look into the crystal ball, look into the future, <laughs> Jetta. Let us know 
what you think might be on the horizon. Yeah, I don't mind online conferences and all of that as, as much as some people do. I, I saw someone tweet the other day that they like, okay, I have to give another talk to a virtual conference. Let me go crush my soul a little bit more. <laughs> so I don't have that same feeling. I did not mind teaching on Zoom nearly as much as other people did. I think that in-person conferences are not going away. People are just going to be choosier, both from a, a financial perspective and from a, a public health perspective going forward. Even if we you know, do put the pandemic more behind us, I think people's just their sort of wiring about coming into contact with other people in close quarters is just going to be different. And that calculus is going to be different moving forward. And so what I wonder is where can conference organizers make tweaks at the margins to prevent it from becoming that have and have not situation to still yeah. get an experience that's meaningful for the people that are not at the top of the, the food chain, whatever industry it is you're talking about, mm -hmm. how can you create an experience that is still meaningful and has some of that value of the, the in-person experience, like podcast movement, for example, there's a pre-conference day that's just for indies, indies only, and then the industry people come in. Maybe there's an analog in the, the ed tech world, for example, or the other worlds that you travel in. So yeah. I just wonder how conference organizers are going to look at this landscape and all these puzzle pieces that are out there and try to rearrange them in, in new ways. Yeah. And, and similarly, when line items and budgets are being looked at, if it's associated with generating sales and revenue and deals, I think those are the people who are going to get their expenses paid to go to a conference and also speakers. If you can be a panelist or an author or a thought leader, maybe even a podcast host, you can get a seat at the table to contribute. But then I think beyond that, mm -hmm. unless you can get some harder returns in terms of business outcomes, partnership opportunities, those doors may be closing. And then that's always a risky message to put out there when we're talking about the importance of equity and access, and we're delivering that through a very diluted online experience. I think it's a very thorny space, an interesting one for experienced designers. The, the concept that gets me very concerned is this idea of filter bubbles, where people mm -hmm. really are only seeing others who filter information the same way. So there's not real exchange of ideas and opportunity to change opinions. Instead, it becomes more reinforcing. Yeah. That's what I think about so much in terms of podcasting and media consumption in the, the academic world. There are people working with tech platforms, for example, to think about how can we tweak the algorithm. So instead of just showing you the same things based on what it already knows you like, it shows you something different. How can we think about those kinds of things? I'm really excited about groups like New Public that are, are working to make the internet more democratic and create spaces where we can have a meaningful dialogue online. I think that is something that the pandemic has brought. There's been an explosion in groups that are, are working to bring people 
together who might not ever get to interact. Otherwise, there was this great program called America Talks that happened earlier this summer. They had several thousand people from all different political beliefs, all different you know backgrounds and rural, urban, all, all the rest of it. They met for facilitated dialogues about political topics, the things that you don't typically talk about in, in polite conversation. So I think there is a selection bias there to some extent about the type of person who's voluntarily going to sign up to do that. But I think that the, the pandemic has allowed or provided space for some of those things that never would have happened in person. So I'm excited to see more folks lean into that and, and make the case to broaden it out beyond just the, the group that would self-select to do things like that. Awesome. We're getting close to time here. Jenna, appreciate very much uh, you coming back on. Any concluding thoughts as we're wrapping up this episode? In reflecting on the last year and a half, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to take a step back and, and think more deeply about the intersection of media and, and democracy and podcasting and continue to work on ways to bring all of them together. I, I feel really excited about all the things I'm working on and I'm looking forward to keeping that momentum going forward. Awesome. Jenna Spinelli, the founder of the Democracy Group. If folks want to track down the Democracy Group, where should they go? What should they do? Yeah, so we are at democracygroup.org. You can check out all of our uh, member shows there, sign up for our newsletter. Um, we share the latest and greatest from across the network and other happenings in democracy and civic engagement every other week. And as I said, we have informational guides on gerrymandering, voting rights, misinformation, all kinds of good stuff at democracygroup.org. Wow. It's almost like you've been to a podcasting conference where they've reinforced how to get your message out under the gun. Very, very nicely done. Jenna Spinelli, thank you so much uh, for joining. Thank you, Mike. Always a pleasure. Awesome. And for our listeners, uh, thanks as always for listening. One, one note, I did see that the way podcasts grow is through word of mouth. If you like what you're hearing, tell a friend, spread the good word. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.